Hello everyone, get ready, because here we go again. We're going on a Bible adventure study of Revelation. We welcome you, and we hope you will find this inspiring, or at least interesting. I'm Brad. And I'm Scott. And this is not about us. Well, Scott, I got to say, I am really enjoying these podcast studies. Me too. Both your awesome study of Genesis and my own look into Revelation. Yes, I want to hear this. You, you teased something last time. Oh. I've been waiting for this one. Oh boy, I hope I, hope I uh, meet your expectations. <laughs> what I'm really enjoying most is the fact that we get to chase after deeper truths and deeper meaning while giving some honor and praise to our glorious God. Absolutely. And we get to share it with our listeners. And I'm just amazed we have listeners. (laughs) Oh, me too. Before we get to the actual study, though, as always, I think it's super important that we start out in the right frame of mind. So to do that, let us start with prayer. So we might be blessed with wisdom and understanding. Scott, I would greatly appreciate if you led a prayer and invited who this is always all about our righteous and awesome God, Yahweh Almighty. Oh, yes. Yahweh God. Yahweh, I never, I don't plan these prayers. I never know where I'm going. I just know I want to pour my heart out to you on these prayers. Whatever comes out, I want it to be honest and for you. And and I just want to lift you up and magnify you and tell you how loved and appreciated you are. You are amazing, God. Uh, As Rich Mullins said, you are an awesome God. God, it's so difficult to put into words just how incredible you are, but you are. You're you're all that my imagination can can create and and more. You're so far beyond what I can comprehend, and that is so cool. We just want to thank you for being God and loving us when you didn't have to. It was a decision. And right now, as your words say in Revelation, there is a blessing on those who read and those who hear and keep those things written therein in this book that we are about to study right now of yours. So God, Almighty God, Yahweh God, I just pray your blessing on every listener today. Hallelujah. In the hearts of all of them that will keep your words, your words, not ours. Yes. Let anything that comes from us drop to the ground and die. But your words, Yahweh God, may there be a blessing, your already previously stated blessing that I just come into agreement with. I'm not adding anything to I come into agreement with your blessing on every listener today who keeps your words. Hallelujah. Scott, I really appreciate your prayers. Thank you. You know, talk about the things that I deeply appreciate. I deeply appreciate anyone who takes the time to listen to this podcast study. My true hope with this ongoing Revelation study is to inspire people to dig deeper than the print on the page. So that being oh, yes. said, that being said, real quick, 
I'd just like to mention a few things about my study of Revelation. When I do this study, I stop and point out the things that interest me. Or I will point out some connection that I have made. Here is the thing, though. I am just as human as you. There is no way I could ever uncover every hidden truth and make every connection. So if our listeners have picked up on something that I have not, I would greatly appreciate you if you wanted to share that with us. That's right. We're both in on that. I mean, that's the amazing thing about Scripture. I can study one passage for a lifetime and get to heaven just to find out there was still more than I could have ever have imagined while I was still here. And also, just not every truth that God lays on my heart might be the same truth he lays on your heart. So to get the complete picture, sometimes it's helpful to bring in multiple people, to see the story from multiple angles, multiple perceptions. I just want to let everyone know, before I start studying, the first thing I always try to do is I ask for wisdom in prayer. And I ask God what he wants me to know from the passages I am studying. This is how I've been doing it for years. But now that I am sharing the study with a listening audience, my hope is that even if you don't find any hidden gems in my study, you will at least search the motive of my heart and realize that all of this is just to inspire you. No matter if you're just an amateur like me or if you have seriously been chasing for a long time. Sometimes, even those who have a relationship with God, who do study and chase, sometimes they need to be inspired to dig deeper the most. Sometimes the things of the world try to get in the way, and it's easy to make excuses as to why we are not in the Word. I sadly am guilty of this a lot. So that's why I just wanted to take this moment to say I am truly appreciating these podcasts. Right now, the things of the world, well, it kind of feels like they're shouting at us, trying to keep us unfocused and distracted from the one thing that is most important, and that is our relationship with Yahweh God and Yeshua the Messiah. So more now more than ever, when the world world around us shows evidence of some of the things mentioned here in Revelation and other parts of the Bible, I feel it's even more important that we try to get back to the source, that we yes. try to get back to God. So that's why I'm taking just this moment here in this study just to kind of tell you where I'm at, what my hopes are, what my prayers are, and just kind of kind of how I go about this whole thing. And like I said, I, I'm an amateur when it comes to Revelation. I've read the book many times, but I have never done an in-depth study before. So you're going to see there are some things that I might reference. Maybe you've heard them before. They could be new to me, or maybe I've heard them before, but I just think they're cool. <laughs> yeah. It's the treasure hunt. It's fun. Yeah, absolutely. But ultimately, I really do hope that any that anyone listening can can see. Anyone listening can see? How about anyone <laughs> listening can hear that it is possible, no matter your level of expertise or schooling, even a big, scary book like Revelation that is really hard to understand, you got this if you got the right frame of mind. Okay. So all of that being said, last time I left off and I said I wanted to spend some more time in this podcast talking about God's throne. Last time we studied Revelation 1-4, and here is just a very quick recap. I mentioned why even when reading the King James Version or other versions, 
I was going to substitute the word church for assembly, and we discussed the seven assemblies, or seven churches, and the seven spirits. But the verse ended with the word throne. Real quick, let's read verse 4 again. John, to the seven assemblies which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. All right, let's break down the Greek word. It's strong concordance, 2362, the Greek, and it's thronos, pretty close, throne, thronos. The definition is simply a throne. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Um, But one of the things I do love about Strong's Concordance is I saw something else here, and that got me thinking about some other things, making some other connections. Once again, my connections that I've made, you might go, I don't see that. I don't understand that. That's totally cool. Um, But if you have any connections or insight, please share them with me. Help educate me too. I would love that. The connection I saw here is the the meaning of this word, a throne, a seat, but it can also be a chair of state having a footstool. So I'm going from a throne to footstool. Having a footstool, I saw a connection to Isaiah 66.1, which starts out by saying, King James Version, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Huh. I see an image in my head of God sitting on his throne. And if the earth is his footstool, then I see this image in my head of the earth being under God's authority, and he's ruling over us. I find it interesting that in Psalm 110.1, God says, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Also, Hebrews 1.13, showing the Messiah has greater authority than the heavenly bodies, says, But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So the image is one of the Messiah having authority over his enemies because God sits on the throne. I don't know, Scott. I love this. Yeah. You're right now. I, you just... Wow, my, wow, I I have no other words. What you're saying right there is, I never considered that before, that this footstool being the same word as throne just adds whole new depth of meaning to those. I mean, I always got, it's like, I'll make them your footstool. It just felt like they were subservient. They were were underneath your feet, but but I, I imagine I replace that word footstool with, I will make them your throne. And since it's the same word here, and, and essentially it, it just adds a whole new depth to that. It's like, you know, like God saying, you know, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. He's basically saying, it's, a, it's, it's, it's my throne too. It's like a smaller throne. I, I, I got all these images running through my head now that's like, it's, it's the beginnings of thoughts that you've just triggered in me. And I don't really have a conclusion or, or words for them. Just this wow image going through my head. And that's why I love the type of study that we're doing. Um, we've mentioned it probably in several podcasts. Maybe you're getting sick of it. I don't know. But Scott and I do these studies separate. 
So when we come here to record them, we do things like this. And uh, I, I also saw some other things here. Um, I, I don't have any major conclusions about this. That's just something that I think is cool. But, you know, we were given dominion over the earth. You know, so are we also, you just mentioned it, that we're going to have our throne. Is then the, the earth our footstool as well? Do we now have dominion over that? Right. You know, and Christ, are we his footstool? You know, does he have dominion over us? It's just, you can see these connections and you can run with them. Uh, maybe not all of them are correct, but multiple versions of these can be correct. But yeah, I just, I start out by trying to figure out what does throne mean? And I see footstool and I go into footstool. This is how we study. This may not be how everybody else studies, but I would recommend giving it a try because really looking into these words really does paint even more than you're just going to see on the page. But the one thing, uh, the, the picture that I kind of have in my head is, you know, Hebrews 1.13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So the image that I'm painting in my head is the Messiah. He's having authority over his enemies because God sits on the throne. I love this because I see this all-powerful, perfect leader, this leader who is always judge, he always judges right and fair. He's sitting in complete and utter authority over everything. It just reminds me of the simple truth that there is nothing that God can't handle, Mm -hmm. nothing that God can't do. No human leader can ever match this. And I've mentioned this before, but pray for our leaders, pray for our teachers, pray for people in special positions, but don't put your hopes and your trust in them. Amen. Put your hopes and your trust in Jesus because he's that perfect leader who cannot make any errors. The only, the only scandal that you'll find with him is that people will hate him because of their own selfish reasons. That's right. Wow. I'm still thinking about, whoa, <laughs> throne, footstool. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Go okay. <laughs> okay. So that is the throne of God. Now, my hope is that when we get to chapter 4, I will be able to paint for our listeners this awesome and gorgeous picture of God's throne in God's throne room. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) When we get there. Oh, all right. Now, if the throne itself is this interesting and this amazing, then can you imagine the throne in its proper place with the Almighty sitting in it surrounded by all the elders and creatures in God's throne room? Then, to me at least, it becomes something... So far beyond belief, so far beyond awesome. I know that 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 blows my mind just to think about that. To to think about it and then to realize I can't think about it. <laughs> right. Just you know that let your imagination go crazy, let your imagination go wild, and then realize this is nothing compared to what it really is. You know. 
Well, exactly. I mean, my greatest imagination, it's still going to be blown out of the water when I actually see it myself. Right. But real quick, I, I made a connection that I hope I will have some better conclusion to to share uh, when we actually get to chapter four. But it's about the throne and the footstool uh, connection that we started here. Basically, to give you an idea of where I'm trying to go with this, I remember reading from chapter four that the throne of God pulsates or explodes with lightning and thunder. So this made me wonder how the throne and the footstool connection that we started to make here might be affected by this glorious pulsating light of the throne. So from other studies that I have done, I remember that lightning can sometimes be represented as God's word breaking forth on the earth and it dismantles the work of Satan. So I feel like there might be some connection there. Uh, I don't have it right now. I don't even have a good opinion about it, but it's something I look forward to thinking about more. And if anyone listening has any ideas about this, please feel free to share them in the comments. I love those moments where you know there's something there, but you, you're just almost there to just, yeah. Well, and I need to look into it deeper because I remember the, the study I was doing um, when it was talking about the pulsating coming from the throne. And then, I don't know if anyone's ever seen heat lightning, dry lightning, but there was this beautiful cloud recently over by my house and heat lightning just going on crazy for hours. And I was just watching it for a while and just getting um, just transfixed by the pulsating. There'd be a bright flash of light and you could make out the whole cloud and even inside the cloud and everything and then it would be gone. And then it would be back. And it just kept doing this pattern over and over again. And to me, it was just glorious and it was hypnotizing. And so just the thought of the throne of God doing something like that, but on a much more glorious scale, to me, it was pretty cool. So I don't know. There might be something there. Um, in the meantime, though, let's go ahead and move on to verse 5. Um, verse 5 and 6 excite me so much because it's all about Jesus and what he did for us. I want to read them to you together, but we will then study them separate. Verse 5 and 6 say, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our own sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, first thing that stands out to me here is that three is mentioned again. Three things mentioned about Jesus. One, he is the faithful witness. Two, he is the first begotten of the dead. Three, he is the prince of the kings of the earth. So let's break that down. He was the faithful witness. Jesus, while on the earth, was faithful in all that he did to witness to and about our Father in heaven. He only spoke the Father's words. Also, he is the faithful witness now sharing the revelation to John. I made a connection here that I'd like to share. Strong's concordance for the Greek word faithful used here is 4103, pistos, which stands for trustworthy, trustful, or believe and believe in. So Jesus believed in God. And as you can probably imagine by now, I would totally agree with that. <laughs> yeah. We should believe in God, not just have faith in God, but believe in him 
and know that he is capable of all things. The word witness used here is Strong's Concordance 3144. The Greek word is martus, which to me was interesting because it means a witness or martyr, one who bears witness by death. So I reread this in my head as, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful believer in God and a martyr for God, who bears witness of God by his death. Now, we should know why, as Christians, we should know why Jesus died on the cross. He paid our debt, the wages of our sin, but something that I guess I never really gave serious thought to until now was that this was also a stand to bear witness to God and what he is capable of. Jesus so believed in God that his death bore witness to that. And as we all know, this is the greatest symbol of Christian faith. Jesus on the cross accomplished so much, so much not just for us, but also to be a witness to God. I don't know. It just was really cool to me. Something that's making me think more about everything. Now, I like the way you say that because it's one of those things that as I ponder it, your brain goes, yeah, you knew that. You, you already knew that, but it brings it out in a way I, I feel like I hadn't consciously considered before. Like, you knew uh, Jesus was there for God, for Father God. You knew there was a connection. You knew they loved each other. You knew all of that, but just the way you, you said that right there, he, he was a faithful witness, meaning he just believed in him. Just, just that, that statement of, I trust you implicitly, that, that just adds sort of a level of passion to it that you don't generally see. I, I don't know, at least for me. So for me, where I got a little humbled while reading this is, I have so much faith in God, so much. But I had to really look at myself and go, but do I really believe in him? There are times where I still doubt some things. Oh, you yeah. Know, like, you you know, on, on every level, you know, God can, there's nothing beyond his control, nothing he can't handle. But in our daily life, there are still times where there's a giant in your way, and for whatever reason, you don't, or at least I don't, believe that that giant can be defeated. I think we all go through that, and um, I think one of the things we fail to understand is that belief uh, is a constantly growing process and, and applies to, on so many different levels. Uh, I think a lot of us just see it as like, if you recognize there's some unbelief there in a certain level and you point it out, uh, the believer in, in God is generally going to say, no, you're wrong. I believe in God. It's like, no, that, that's not what I'm talking about. You're not believing in this area. For, for example, someone who says, I've accepted Jesus Christ for my salvation. I've accepted his death and resurrection on the cross. I've accepted that gift. I believe he is God. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that he paid the debt for my sin. I'm a believer. I'm, and I have absolute faith in that. I'm not moving from that. Okay, what about in the gifts of the Holy Spirit? What about in his victory over uh, sickness and illness? Do you believe that he's moving in your life today and he can order the course of your life 
on a daily, moment-by-moment basis to make things perfect the way he wants them. Oh, well, well, no, I don't believe that because of my religion, because of my... It can be your inexperience. Your mind says, I know he can, but the heart isn't going along with it at the moment uh, because you just haven't, like I said, you haven't experienced it. You're not you're not an elder in the faith in that sense. You're still a new believer. And there's a lot of levels to faith that we fail in, that we all grow in. I'm strong in one sense. I'm weak in another. You're strong in where I'm weak, uh, and I need you, and and I'm strong where you're weak. You need me. We're all of, we're supposed to be a family helping each other. But yes, I believe the way I think about it generally is if you can picture like a chart, and there's like a hundred different categories, so to speak, of of w- uh, ways you can believe in God, so to speak. I could be missing, you know, I could be very low in 50 of them and very high in another 50, not recognize that I have a lack of faith in some areas because my faith in the areas I'm focused on is so high. I feel like I'm kind of rambling now, but does any of that make no, sense? No, 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 it makes sense. I I struggled for a long time because I, I fought some jealousy. I would see people who are gifted musicians or gifted photographers or gifted artists or painters or all these kind of things. And I would wonder, God, what am I good at? What is my talent? You know? So for an example, someone in your position might say, I have a lack of faith that God actually has a design for me. Exactly. I, I struggled with that for a while. And silly as it is, it took me a long time. I was, I was doing my talent. This is my talent. Study. (laughs) Uh Um, sharing my my emotions my 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 emotional state my 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 experiences speaking with people that is actually my talent and i usually do better one on one so doing a podcast for who knows how many people might listen is a little outside my comfort zone but it took me a while to realize that is my talent so now i'm running with that but i there for a while i did doubt and I think it was because it was coming from a place of selfishness. Like, I wanted to be a good painter or a good singer or be able to play an instrument or do any of these kind of things. Yeah. But I didn't put the work in, mm-hmm. you know. And here I had a talent, but it wasn't necessarily what I wanted because how does that bring me prestige? How does that make me look cool? Right. You know? It was all a selfishness. And so once I beat down that giant and realized, okay, this is something I'm good at, and it's been helpful in, in, in my job. I mean, we sometimes have people come in that are in the midst of anxiety or, or anxiety attack. Um, they're very anxious. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, I can talk to them. I can talk them down. I do really well one-on-one. That's a talent. Definitely is. So, it's yeah. a talent I don't have. I'm, I'm very analytical, very introverted. I'm connecting with people in a personal way like that is not natural for me at all. But something I've noticed that you have a talent of is you can um, diffuse a situation really well. Um, that's an area that I don't always ex- excel in. So, I mean... Yeah, we, exactly. So Everyone they're, has they're, their different things, and we're all needed together. Absolutely. So that And that's what it's about. No one person can... If we use like a, a video game kind of term, no one person can have 100% in all of their stats. Right. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. my stats might be 
charisma might be a little higher than yours, but your wisdom is going to be might be a little higher than me. If that makes sense to anyone, <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm I'm a gamer too, and I love it. And uh, yeah, the idea that you're going into a scenario with six people, and one of them has the high strength, one of them has the high intelligence, one and and you all have special skills, and you all need each other to complete the task. That is something we should see as Christians and recognize and say, hey, that is a picture of we need to work together. We, God gave us these abilities for a reason. Uh, I'm here for you. You're here for me. And we shouldn't think we can do this all by ourselves. I saw a thing that said that politicians normally don't want to show what religion they are or any of those kind of things. They want to try to keep those separate. Um, And it's like, to me, no, we need more Christians to go into politics. We need more Christians to go into, if we're having a problem with like the police department right now, we need more Christians to go into the police department then. If you want to solve the problem, put more Christians into those positions and live those ideals in that position. It's something that I am now trying to do in my job too. Just... When I can, be thankful that God put me in a position where I was able to help someone, you know, and appreciate that. Because there have been times where if I had not got that person, maybe they wouldn't have got the care they needed and it wouldn't have been a great situation. But that being said, there are also times where I may have got somebody and made a situation worse and it would have been better if they'd gone to like you. Yeah. We need to get as many Christian believers into these positions and we need them to live those ideals, even in their jobs. And not separate them. That's something that um, I've struggled with in the past too. But anyway, I think we all have. Yeah. But, but yeah, go go ahead, go on with what's next. And so, okay, so that's what I got from. That's what I got from. Who is the faithful witness? Uh, next up is and the first begotten of the dead. So the first begotten. Normally, when you think about this, it's uh, it's like the first child. Right. God. In, in God's case, he sent his only child, first begotten of the dead. So Jesus is the first child, the first son who conquered death, who of the dead. Well, anyway, Scott, let, let's break down uh, the Greek word used here for begotten. Okay. It's Strong's Concordance 4416. And I apologize, I'm going to probably butcher this. Prototachus. And it's, it's an alternate of the word firstborn. Makes sense. I think of firstborn when I hear first begotten. But this kind of made me think about Jesus being the firstborn of the dead. Can I go back real quick? Yeah, go for it. You said the word itself stands for firstborn? Mm-hmm. So begotten stands for firstborn? Yes. So it's first begotten, the first firstborn? That's interesting because... Because Jesus is technically the firstborn of almost about everything. I'm going to get into that. Okay. Um, but what, what, what does this mean? To think about Jesus as being the firstborn of the dead. Now, his, to me, his resurrection and the death were also a birth of sorts. I mean, one of the big things that I saw was this was the birth of Christianity. This was the birth of Billions and billions of people and their faith. 
was all born from that moment of resurrection, that moment. So many things were born from that. Now, this is the first time anyone was resurrected and did not die again. Jesus himself resurrected others, but they would ultimately die. Yeah, that's true. So here's the very first born of death, born into his new glorified awesome body. Um, you know, you, you, you've heard of Lazarus. You know, he's probably the most famous. He was born, but ultimately he would die again. Jesus, first one, born again into the glorified body. And the cool thing about that is we get to do that too. He was the firstborn, but we're going to follow into those steps. We will also be born again into a glorified, perfected body. So that's cool. But uh, Jesus totally conquers death. He himself later in Revelation 1.18 states, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So he was born into this new body, the first one ever. But I also see some other connection here that I did not have any strong conclusions about, but I feel like it's worth noting. The concept of firstborn has great significance in the Old Testament, where the firstborn son inherited his father's place as head of the family, receiving the father's blessing and a double portion of the inheritance. Deuteronomy <laughs> twenty-one seventeen. After the Passover in Egypt, God told his people that every firstborn child was set aside as his own. That's Exodus 13, 2. So Jesus is God's firstborn son, then he inherits his father's place. He received his father's blessing and a double portion of his father's inheritance. But if Jesus is also the firstborn of the dead, then what did he inherit from that? In my mind, this makes his sacrifice even more powerful. He sacrificed himself for us and took on a double portion of the inheritance of death but he totally defeated death and took his place as the head of the family. He now has the keys to death and Hades. He has taken the place over death at the head of that table. Now, when I was thinking about this, in my mind, I saw this beautiful, glorious, awesome picture that I hope I can put into words. Um, I don't know if I'll be able to do it justice as it was in my head, but imagine Jesus Christ in total victory rising out of Hades with the keys in one hand in full power and glory. It just made me realize, oh man, he's powerful. Jesus is powerful and strong. Not even death can hold him. I see it as Satan and death had a deal. Satan would see to it that Jesus was killed, and death, well, death just had to hold him. And I wonder, for those first couple days, if Satan thought maybe, just maybe, he had won. Up until now, death had held every person ever. But then, day three comes, and for the first time, something new happens. Death loses its hold. Death loses, period. Jesus, now in full control and power, breaks death's hold, and now forever and ever, we all have the ability to defeat death, all because of Jesus, our awesome Savior. And all I can really say to that is, bless you, Jesus. 
Wow. Man, that's... I, I mean, I, I, I'm the same way. I saw... I always saw God, you know, conquering sin and death, which he did, uh, not denying that in any way, but just this whole concept you bring up of inheritance, and, and it adds a whole new spin on that. He, I, boy, it, it, my mind is, is trying to conceive it for the very first time now, so I don't have very cohesive thoughts, but that's an amazing picture He's the first begotten, so he gets the inheritance. So it's like the keys were handed over. Now, and I know that's not saying he didn't actually win them. Yes, he defeated uh, death, hell, and the grave. But just this picture, I think that's intentional, that there's a picture there that, that he's the first begotten son, gaining, like you said, a double part. He's, wow, I'm, I'm just imagining right now he owns them, not just, not simply as a conquering invader, so to speak. Because in that sense, you can kind of say, they're not really his, he took them, right. he stole them. But when you add that concept of inheritance, it's like, no, they belong to him. He, the, the keys of death, hell, and the grave are his. He owns them, he possesses them legally, it's not just he came in, punched Satan in the face, ripped them out of his hands and said, you can't have these back, but really they belong to Satan. You know, Jesus is just saying, uh, tough, they're mine. What are you going to do about it? But this is, this is Jesus saying, no, these belong to me. He's returned to claim what is rightfully his. And Satan has no defense against that because he is the first begotten of the dead. Yeah, that... He is the firstborn. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to think a while on that because right now you, you just you, you blew my mind with that concept. And I'm trying to put it all together, but uh, so like I said, I don't have the greatest cohesive thoughts right now. But that that's awesome. Well, and like I said, I don't necessarily have very strong conclusions about this, but it just my mind went away from this study. I just saw this heroic image of Jesus coming in and claiming what was his. Yeah. And then rising out and doing even more than what his father did with it. Not God the Father, but what I'm saying is the son comes in, he takes what's rightfully his, and does even more mm -hmm. than what was already done. Wow. Right, wow, yeah. Like I said, I'm going to have to let that simmer for a while. That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I'm glad you liked that. Um, so, verse 5. <clears throat> Holy cow, all of this, we're only on verse five. <laughs> wow. I know. Keep this, going. No, this is cool. I know. This is what, this is what happens in my studies is uh, uh, I, get, I, I like to look at each individual word and really kind of give it some thought. And if nothing comes, nothing comes. But if something does, then I just run with it to the best of my ability. And I'm not saying, once again, don't listen to me if it doesn't sound right, if it doesn't sound like it's from the Spirit. If, if I give you an idea that you're just like, I, I can't buy that. It doesn't stick well with me. Throw it away because it wasn't from the Spirit. But if I do have something from the Spirit, go ahead. Let it be planted in your heart. And then I encourage you to run and do your own chase with that. But anyway, <clears throat> let's look at uh, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of kings of the earth. Other versions say ruler of the kings of the earth. So 
as well as being the first begotten of dead, Jesus, as always, is God's first begotten, firstborn. Um, and Scott, you kind of mentioned first, first. Well, that's right. true because Jesus is the first, first. He was with God at the creation. He was with God from eternity. And when, as we've talked about before, eternity is, <laughs> there is no way to actually to, to have a beginning and an end to eternity. It just is. Right. Uh, we're, we're linear beings. We have to process it the way our minds will process it. But eternity is just always was. Um, so he literally is the first of the first. He's the first and only child of God. He's the first of begotten of the dead. Um, but here also, he's God's firstborn and rightful heir. He is God's prince, and as such, he will rule over all the earth and all the leaders of the earth. God stated it in Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven. Also, I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. Now, at the time that John is writing this, the Roman emperors thought they ruled the world. So this message right here is just kind of a reminder uh, to them, but also to us now, that no, no human king, no human ruler is above Jesus. Uh, John is saying that Jesus is the prince to God and rules over all the leaders of this world. And honestly, <laughs> I thank God he does, because as we've seen over and over again, human leaders are human. We're flawed. We don't always make the best decisions. A lot of times we follow our own selfish desires. And all we need to do is look at those Roman emperors uh, to see evidence of that. Yeah. But here we have someone who is beyond all of that, a perfected, never sinned person who can rule over us. And he's the only one worthy to do so. And he's the only one that can be truly fair and just. Wow. So... Take that, rulers of the earth. <laughs> and um, something I want to throw in there. Um, I don't remember when or where I heard this, but a while ago someone taught me or, uh, again, I don't, I don't remember if this was uh, someone telling me or I read about this, but we tend to think in the Western world that a prince means the son of the king, which that's, that's not untrue. Uh, that's what they're known as. But when the term prince is used here, in the Bible, it really boils down to a very important person. Right. And I, I hadn't realized that till I don't know, five or six years ago. I, I had this idea, prince is the son of a king. And, and, and a prince can be the son of a king. It can refer to that. But you can have many princes in the land with no relation to the king whatsoever. Uh, when the Bible's talking about these princes and those princes, it's just it, it could be just simply referring to very powerful, very influential people. It could be CEOs of businesses in, in modern day. It could be uh, could be athletes, famous athletes. It's just talking about very influential, powerful people in the land. And so that's why I, I thought of that when you said that uh, Prince of the Kings of the Earth, another version says ruler of the Kings of the Earth. It's just kind of emphasizing 
Because one of the things that bugged me when I was younger is like, why is Jesus a prince? Yes. But these, these earthly people are called kings. Doesn't king outrank prince? Yes, that was something that I struggled with, yeah. with my first few times reading this very verse mm-hmm. was I got caught up on that because in our mindset, a prince is lower than the king. The prince yes. is waiting to be the king. Mm-hmm. Um, and not all, prince, not all princes will become kings. You know, right. usually it's the firstborn or mm-hmm. whatever it might be. So yeah, no, I, I totally get what you're saying. I struggle with that um, before I started doing these studies as well. But essentially the verse is talking about he's he is the prince of God. He's, he's the first begotten of God. If you think of God as the king, he's his son. He, he is in line to that throne, essentially. But when you think of it as ruler or just very important person, what it's really saying is Jesus is the the rule that he even leads all of the great men of earth. Essentially, he's Jesus is more important, more powerful. He's the prince. He's the most important person over even the very kings of the earth. Exactly. And if the kings and the important people of the earth were smart, they would listen to his wise teachings. Right. <laughs> now, uh, verse 5 continues, Unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I'm going to get uh, caught up on the word loved us here real quick. So on to him that loved us. The Strong's Concordance for loved here is 25. Uh, not to be confused with agapi, this is agapio, if I've said it right. Uh, the, to, this one is to love in a moral or social sense. It means beloved. It means much loved. First John 4, 7 through 8, uh, this is the Passion Translation, explains it this way. Those who are loved by God, let his love continually pour from you to one another, because God is love. Everyone who loves is fathered by God and experiences an intimate knowledge of him. The one who doesn't love has yet to know God, For God is love. The Passion Translation also puts verse 5 this way. Now to the one who constantly loves us. God's love is described as the Greek word agapio, which means unconditional love, preferential love, that is chosen and acted out by the will. It is not love based on the goodness of the beloved or upon natural affinity or emotion. Rather, this is love that always seeks the good of the beloved. So imagine that Jesus loves you constantly from beginning to end. And remember that he has always been and will always be. So his beginning and his end continually loved us. Now this brings us to the next part of this verse. Because we are the beloved of Christ, he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Because this kind of love always seeks the good of the beloved. And as we all know, sin is not good. Now, the next thing that kind of caught my attention here was the word washed. Jesus washed us from our sins. I looked into the word washed, and I think this connection I made is kind of it's, it's pretty cool. Strong's Concordance 3068. And I think it's just Luo. Luo. Luo, sorry. 
and it means to bathe, to wash. Um, it can be also mean cleansed from sin. The meaning of the word also is properly to wash, especially the entire person, or bathing the whole body. It implies a full washing, a complete bathing to cleanse the entire person. And this was kind of interesting to me. It also can mean to wash a dead person. Huh. That, that, yeah, wow. So, Jesus loves you so much that he will completely, properly, fully cleanse your entire person, your entire body of sin. You are dead in your sins. You are a dead body in your sins. But Jesus is properly, completely washing you of that sin. This makes me think of something my grandma used to say. She used to say to me when she was talking about doing chores or cleaning the house, if there was a job worth doing, then it was worth doing to perfection. Now, she really set the bar high here because when you consider that we are all just humans, we are incapable of doing anything to perfection. But Jesus, Jesus is God, so he can do it. This job of cleaning us from our sins needed to be done to perfection. And only by Jesus and only by the blood of Jesus can it be done to perfection. This image in my head of Jesus really taking his time to wash the sin away from every corner of our body, it's intriguing to me. I mean, he would really have to love us, a love that we can't even understand, to be willing to work so hard to fully wash us of all of our sins. Yeah. You know, something else that that jumps out at me with this verse is just the word from. And this, it was just a few years ago that this really struck me, the way this verse is phrased, because I always imagined Jesus is washing away our sins. And I used wash away, not from. When when I grew up, I, I hear the songs, I hear the stories, you, you know, you're taught in Sunday school, Jesus washes our sins away, which isn't inaccurate but you get this idea that we're here and the sin we we remain in place the sins leave but and this is just a minor thing i i understand but this this made it new to me we are washed from our sins and i saw this more as in the uh that with the baptismal imagery of going under and we come back up. Our sin is what remains in place. The sin stays in the blood. We rise up out of the blood clean. Jesus washed us from our sins. He pulled us out of our sin. He didn't pull the sin out of us. He pulled us out of sin. It's, it might be trivial to some people, but that, that really struck me that uh, the sin is essentially locked in that, that burial place. Yeah. We are the ones that rose up and came out of that. Yeah, it's a cool image. I like that. I'm going to share with you First uh, John 1, 7. Uh, once again, using the Passion Translation, I just like it. It feels like it's a love letter. But it says, But if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him— we share unbroken fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, 
His Son continually cleanses us from all sin. Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. When I think of continually, I still limit that word based on my own idea of time. But think about it for a moment. Continually from Jesus would be continually from outside of time. It has no limit whatsoever. A small detail, maybe, but that thought boggles my mind. I'm unable and sometimes even unwilling to wash away my own sin. But Jesus is continually working to cleanse me of sin, and he is doing the same for any person who accepts him. Yeah, now that you say that, oh, you're blowing my mind here again. Outside of time, Jesus, he doesn't have to die on the cross again for us. It's been done. But when you say that, he, he died on the cross, was resurrected, rose again. That event to God exists outside of time. So essentially, God couldn't die again for our sins because a million years in the future, whatever, he's, he's dying at that moment. He's doing continually. Uh, again, I said it before, this, this is hitting me right now because of what Brad said, uh, and I have, don't have a cohesive thought. It's just my mind is starting to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm grasping that concept. But, you know, he, he had it finished before man was created. He had the whole plan finished he, continually throughout all of eternity, past, future, eternity. He died for us. It, it's just, it, it happened. There's no time, so to speak, in all of eternity where it hasn't happened. It's, it's done. At any given moment, it, it's, it, it's happening right there, so to speak. Right. It's happening at this moment. Do you I, see how it, why it boggles my mind? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It, it's when we, we, like you said, we as limited beings try to comprehend eternity. Oh, boy, um, my head's going to explode. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got to admit that normally this is the reverse. Normally it's Scott that's blowing my mind. So maybe this is not the most humble statement ever, but I'm liking this. <laughs> I'm liking that I can blow your mind once in a while too. Um, well, I'm enjoying it too. So. <laughs> but, but just for a moment, wow. I mean, just wow, we have such very small, little, limited words to express how awesome and amazing these things are. I really hope I can do a proper job of explaining this to our listeners, just explain how awesome all of this really is. But I may not be able to do that. You just have to, you have to want to see it, but get it from the source. Chase after God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and so you can see these things too. And and of course, I don't want to be so. There's probably some people that are much further along in their chase than I am. And if that's you, if you've seen some connections that I don't see, something that I haven't made, share it with me, because I want to. I want to celebrate what you have as well. But I think for now, this will be a good place to stop for this study. We're starting to run a little long. Um, so here's what I'm planning on doing. I'm going to, I'm going to get my study on <laughs> and when we come back, we'll get into verses six and seven. All right. Um, I've already kind of looked at a few little things and I'm excited and I'm excited to continue this Bible adventure with all of you, our listeners and with Scott. So until next time, I'm Brad and I'm Scott and this has been not about us.